Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. Trade Bites is the podcast series that trains a high-spec microscope onto the weird old Petri dish that is UK trade policy. And in this episode, we're taking a few steps back from our usual obsessions with things like originating content and chlorinated chicken to ask the question, who are the ultimate stakeholders in UK trade policy? And how much of a say do they actually have in the policies that ultimately govern us? Things have certainly moved on since the time not that long ago when European and American negotiators would disappear into a room to talk about a transatlantic trade deal and come out again giving virtually no information about what they'd been talking about. These days, most governments try a lot harder to be transparent about their trade objectives and to give their stakeholders at least some input into the process. But as the UK government settles into its own post-Brexit trade policy, Has it learnt good or bad habits from its neighbours and partners? How is Britain doing in its quest to establish a trade policy which is inclusive, to use a term which will no doubt merit further definition in the course of the next half an hour or so? And when our trade diplomats negotiate deals on our behalf, are they truly reflecting our interests and our objectives? To address some of these questions, I'm joined today by three excellent guests who have deep and varied expertise in this area. I'm joined by Professor Alan Winters, Professor of Economics at the University of Sussex and the Fellow and Founding Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. It's a great pleasure to welcome Ruth Bergen, Senior Advisor at the Trade Justice Movement, a coalition of UK civil society organisations. And welcome also to Professor Daniel Wincott, Blackwell Professor of Law and Society at the University of Cardiff. Welcome, everybody. It's great to have you with us. Alan Winters, I'll start with you, and you, of course, get the easy question to begin with. When we speak of an inclusive trade policy, how do we define that? Who do we want to include, and how do we know that these people are not currently being excluded? So the simple answer is we want to include everybody, but that's just not very helpful. But the problem is the minute you start to draw a boundary round and say this is the group of people we want to include, there's going to be somebody who's on the outside. So I think, in a sense, inclusive trade policy defies precise definition and precise boundaries. What we are quite clear is that we can see that some people are being excluded effectively from decision making. We can see that in some cases, trade policy imposes costs on some people, perhaps some regions, And that in that sense, these are people who are being excluded. And it's not to say that one can define a trade policy that only ever suits everybody, because actually trade policy always involves some sorts of trade-offs. So I think inclusive trade policy, in a sense, is aware of who's at the table, of who's affected. 
it is conscious that that needs to balance out over society as a whole, sort of in the long run and across all the various things that you're trying to do, and that you manage frictions and stresses where you can. It very rapidly sort of spills over into other elements of policy. So it's not that trade policy is the only thing you've got. You also have a whole series of policies uh, that the current government talks about in terms of levelling up. And so that's all part of the idea of making trade policy contribute to that and be supported by it. Ruth Bergen, from your perspective, would you define trade non-inclusion as an inability to influence the formulation of trade policy or more as an inability to benefit from those policies once they are in force? Or is is that a sort of a false dichotomy to set up at this point? I think, yeah, um, the last thing. I think you can't take the one thing without the other. And I think our starting point for these kinds of discussions is always that trade policy now covers such a broad range of issues that it is of interest to and impactful on almost everybody. So, you know, it covers services, often including public services like water, energy, health. It has an impact on food standards. And so that's the reason why we think that actually this is a debate that needs to be as inclusive as possible, to echo what Alan was saying. But I think from our point of view that the focus on non-inclusion is really on the ability of the people impacted by trade to shape what our trade policy looks like. And I think what's a big shame in terms of where the UK is at at the moment is that there's a a bit of a presumption towards secrecy. And I think actually, if we were a bit more open to including more voices, we actually would get better trade policy. And I think that's often missed in the discussion. Daniel Wincott, how's the UK doing so far? To what extent does its new trade policy framework take account of the diverse views from civil society, different business groups, and of course, from the devolved authorities? Just following up on what Ruth has just said, there is a real sense of secrecy around trade policy in the UK at the moment of a small group at the heart of Whitehall and Westminster that's really taking these decisions on their own. I guess there's also a sense in which trade policy is the other side of the coin of domestic governance arrangements. So it's clear that trade policy will have significant implications for the policy making of the devolved authorities, for example. And they're all pretty concerned that they're kind of outside the tent at the moment. So they're not really included, that decisions are being made that will shape what they can do over the medium and longer term, and they're not involved in in making those kinds of decisions. Although, in a sense, the external trade policy also reflects aspects of the current UK government's approach to uh, domestic policymaking around devolution too. So there was a big furore about the UK's Internal Market Act about a year ago, uh, an act that changes devolved competence, but that none of the devolved parliaments consented to. So there's a bit of a pattern here, I think, of a group in London trying to drive policy forward in both these areas in a direction that they're picking and that may not be linking up with wider civil society or devolved groups. 
And Dan, what do you attribute this to? I mean, is it possible that the UK government is being a little bit secretive about the way it does trade policy because it's a little bit unsure of itself, because this is new ground, because the UK has only been an autonomous trading country for less than 12 months? Do you get the sense that the UK is sort of feeling its way a little bit, perhaps? I'm sure that's right. You know, this is a new world and trade negotiations are tricky things and the UK doesn't have much experience with them. At the same time, I wonder if there's a kind of lack of trust from the UK centre with some of those wider groups, that they're aware that they might want to pull policy in a different direction and kind of building up a head of steam to develop a set of trade deals from the centre can kind of shape the terrain for future policymaking. So I think it's a mix of things, really. I guess overall, we also don't really have a clear sense of the UK government's overarching trade strategy, right? So it seems to be making a lot of specific trade deals, but it's not really clear what the overall purpose or direction of travel for UK trade policy is yet, which goes back to your point about feeling our way. I think there are two things that are kind of apparent to us in terms of the UK approach. One is that if they have recognised the sort of broader impacts of trade, and there's some of that in there, I think we're going to come on to talk about sort of gender and labour chapters, it isn't kind of across the board recognition of the importance of understanding the links between trade and broader societal impact. So that doesn't seem to have been properly integrated into the thinking, or at least it's not feeding through into how they engage with different stakeholders. The other thing that's been really disappointing from our point of view is the reluctance to learn from others that we've been working with. So at the moment in the UK, we don't even have the sort of level of scrutiny engagement that we had when we were part of the EU. And I realise that's a difficult conversation because of all the tensions around Brexit. But, you know, in terms of kind of a final vote for MPs or the kind of level of engagement with politicians in terms of the development of trade agreements, we're simply a very long way from where we used to be in terms of access and engagement. And, you know, there was more that we were hoping the EU would, would be able to do. Perhaps I can just add one observation. Ruth mentioned the B word. Uh, This is, in a sense, a hangover from Brexit. Brexit had a dramatic effect on our trade relations with Europe, and the narrative had to be right from 2016 that don't worry, there's the rest of the world to trade with and everything will be fine. The government still seems to be rather nervous that Brexit uh, is not entirely secure, perhaps not going quite as well as they hoped. And therefore, having an open discussion about trade requires a degree of political confidence and courage that I'm not sure they're ready for yet. I do think it's important to remember that this sort of short-term thing affects things, and we do need to get practices and institutions established to make trade conversations, as it were, more inclusive in future. So we've identified a lack of inclusiveness or an unwillingness to sort of open the tent as broadly as as could be the case on the part of the UK government. I'm wondering to what extent this is a, a systemic issue or a sort of a cultural issue. In other words, should we address this by changing the laws and regulations or do we need to change attitudes? Dan, what's your view on that? 
I think it's got to be both. I think it's a both and, not an either or. If you create seemingly beautiful structures and legal frameworks, but the culture doesn't change, then those structures won't work. Equally, if you try and change the culture, but keeping it within the current structures, then that'll fail. And culture change is hard. Culture change is very hard. I'm not sure that there's a kind of a disposition, which, as Alan has said, I think is probably a legacy of Brexit, but I'm not sure there's a disposition to kind of include your erstwhile opponents in the conversation. I think the political cultural legacies of Brexit are hanging over this debate in quite powerful kinds of ways that make it difficult to move on just yet. Let's move on to look at some of the specific issues which arise very often when we're talking about trade policy and trade agreements. And a lot of new trade agreements are including, for example, provisions on labour standards with the relevant parties. I wonder how good a job you think the EU and increasing extent the UK, how good a job are they doing in using trade as a tool for improving working conditions in developing countries? Ruth, what's your perspective on this? So I think our starting point is slightly different in that what we want to make sure happens is that trade agreements don't drive worsening conditions. I I don't think that trade agreements themselves are are necessarily the right tools for achieving better working conditions. That's the sort of thing that you want to leave to the international labour organisation and to sort of social partners, trade unions on, on the ground to achieve. What you do see in trade agreements and the sort of trend that you're talking about is the inclusion of labour chapters and also environmental standards. You also see reference to international commitments, say, in the preamble. The problem with all of that is that none of it is really enforceable. It's certainly not as enforceable as the other elements of the trade agreement. So if a country makes uh, commitments in terms of tariff reductions, there are steps that the partner country can take to enforce those. So it could impose, um, following a process, it could decide to impose sort of retaliatory tariffs if it finds that that country's not lived up to its commitments. Individual companies can also use some aspects of trade agreements if they're contained in the agreement to take action against a country policy if they don't like it. So this is the investor-to-state dispute settlement. Labour and environmental chapters are generally not subject to those kinds of enforceability. And really that takes the teeth out of them. So to that extent, really, trade agreements are not serving that purpose. And actually, rather than these kind of add-ons and this kind of non-enforceable language, what would be much better is to look across the trade agreement, across the different provisions and say, well, are provisions on services, on market access, on investment, how might they be driving worsening labour conditions, worsening environmental outcomes. And I think it's very noticeable, particularly on the environment, that UK scoping studies are systematically saying that their trade agreements will increase CO2 emissions. And I think that's where we need to see intervention. It's sort of where we are making an assessment that things are going to get worse as a result of a trade agreement. And currently that's not happening. So those kind of remediation steps are not being taken. Going back to the to the labour issue, Alan, a slightly different way of looking at this. If you're a developing country, then your natural comparative advantage over a country like the UK is that your labour costs are naturally lower. So if we are too prescriptive in terms of setting labour standards and so on in the context of free trade agreements, do we risk denying these countries those natural benefits? 
There is a danger, I think. I mean, uh, what Ruth has said already is, look, it's not enforced very much. So in a sense, it's not affecting very much. But in principle, you could set up a set of regulations that is essentially contrary to comparative advantage and therefore not to the economic advantage of the country, the partner on whom it's imposed. An example where a trade agreement quite possibly is flying in the face of comparative advantage is the um, USMCA, US-Mexico-Canada Agreement, the um, NAFTA version 2, which includes rules of origin for trade in auto parts where wages have to be above $16 an hour for the Mexicans to be able to export parts essentially into the US. It's not at all clear that that is the wage that, as it were, optimises Mexico's ability to undertake economic welfare. We are very pleased for the people who get $16 an hour where otherwise they would have only got 12 But it is important to recognise that there might be fewer of them as a result of that, or indeed it might come at the expense of some other group. So I think the answer is there is some danger in looking at developing countries and saying, good Lord, they ought to be like us. They are not at an economic state where that's reasonable. You have to make sure that you are gearing conditions to uh, suit the case. On the other hand, it's not unreasonable to have trade agreements that say egregious retreats on standards are not acceptable. And as Ruth has said, maybe you have to link that to trade because it's a trade agreement, or maybe you can just make it a condition for interaction with the the firm, uh, through the, uh, the company, through something like a good faith clause. So just to sort of add to what Alan was saying, I think there is a question around how trade agreements interact with supply chains. And actually, quite often they operate fairly separately, depending a little bit on what country you're looking at. But we know that in international supply chains, often the poor conditions are driven by the business model that's sort of in the in the richer countries. So in the UK or in the US, where, I mean, you know, there's lots of kind of just-in-time ordering um, so that that supply chain has to respond very quickly and therefore corners get cut or, you know, there are last-minute changes in orders that put pressure down the supply chain, often on the workers in the most vulnerable positions. And I think there is a case that we ought to be looking at how do trade agreements and how do our trade arrangements, so, you know, Countries where that question might come up relatively more for us might be, you know, Bangladesh, Cambodia, which we know are are kind of sources of of cheaply produced clothing. And we have a trade arrangement with them, not a a fully fledged free trade agreement, but we do have the generalised system of preferences in place there. Are there things that that system could be doing better? Actually, in terms of the way UK beneficiaries of that system, how they are putting pressure or otherwise down supply chains that's maybe causing some of the poorer labour conditions and putting downward pressure on wages. So I think that is a question we we could do more to address. Now, one of the things which trade agreements are increasingly including, as well as references to labour standards and so on, is also trade and gender. The new UK-New Zealand Free Trade Agreement, for example, has a chapter on trade and women's economic empowerment, is the phrase that they use. I'm wondering to what extent and in what ways 
is trade policy actually capable of addressing issues of gender inequality? Is that more of a societal issue? What can a, a good, a well-formed trade agreement do to help in this area? So, by and large, you know, gender issues are issues of domestic policy rather than trade issues. But there clearly is a potential gender dimension in much trade policy. For instance, the goods that are traded might be predominantly produced by women or predominantly produced by men or indeed sometimes, unfortunately, children. And so if you have a trade agreement that, as it were, focuses its firepower on really increasing particular bits of trade, you have to recognise that that might create an unlevel playing field. Again, I think you can't be using trade policy to drive gender outcomes, but you do need to be aware where there are particular imbalances and where you might be worsening them. Again, the issue is not necessarily just don't sign the trade agreement. It is do the trade agreement, then make sure you are doing something else to try and level up that particular playing field. So I think, again, it's similar to the labour rights question. And and I think the current approach of just including chapters that aim at women's economic empowerment is is much too narrow a lens to be looking at this issue through. So women's economic empowerment seems to boil down to getting more women entrepreneurs into the international trade sphere, trading internationally, making more connections. And that's, you know, that's a, a reasonable goal. But I think there's much more that we need to do to think about how trade impacts on gender outcomes. And something that we're particularly concerned about, for example, is how trade agreements impact on service provision. So that might be public services, so your health and water, or it might be things like financial services, which in some countries are still publicly provided to some extent. And if you see a concentration of privatisation, maybe a concentration of foreign investors as a result of a trade agreement, you can see quite strong gender impacts because women tend to be relatively higher users of public services and have particular needs in terms of access to public services. They're more likely to be carers at home, so caring for others that might be trying to access health services. And what you see with concentrations in terms of private provision is often the least lucrative bits of that provision suddenly are weakened or undermined. So so provision in rural areas might be something that suddenly is not seen as so lucrative and loses private provision. You might see particular forms of care appearing less attractive to foreign investors and therefore you sort of see that provision undermined. And in the case of financial services, that was quite striking. We've definitely seen evidence that the kind of rural provision and provision for people with relatively less funds can drop if there's a big influx of kind of private providers that sometimes undermines the state provision. So those are the kinds of things that we think trade policy and trade agreements needs to be considering starting with a really good impact assessment as well as kind of ongoing assessment of the impacts that it, that's having and then action to change the trade agreement and to change how it operates. I very much agree with what's been said so far. I think it links back to the broader point about what we mean by inclusion in trade policy and in trade negotiations and you know at what stage in the process it happens. So if the people who are included are a particular category of women 
who are entrepreneurs and trying to to get into uh, international trade more, you know, that's important in its own right, but it misses out a whole set of other highly gendered issues. And you can say the same thing as Ruth and Alan have both suggested about labor as well. More generally, I think it picks up this idea that trade and internal policy are two sides of the same coin and that uh, trying to make them work together is critically important. But a crucial part of that is not expecting trade policy to do the heavy lifting on policy questions, on policy problems that really require a sustained domestic policy effort. So you've got an issue about who's included in domestic policymaking as the flip side of the coin of who's included in trade policy. So as we move towards sort of wrapping up our podcast, I'd like to ask um, everyone really a question about how you think European trade policy, if I put it in those terms, it covers the sort of legacy EU approach as well as the new UK approach. In what ways has it become more inclusive over the past decade or so? And you know, are we making progress or are we standing still or, or going backwards? So European policy, EU policy uh, is relatively inclusive and has indeed become more inclusive over the last 20 years or so. For instance, through the increasing role of the European Parliament, the um, sustainability impact assessments that they issue on new trade agreements, and the sort of general transparency with which the EU puts information out, like revealing its negotiating mandates. One might argue that it's not perfect, but it has, I think, improved over 20 years. The UK, um, I'm afraid, has pulled out of that system and tended to move backwards. We don't have formalised systems for consultation. We have very little role for Parliament. And therefore, in a sense, as we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, the set of players round the table has almost certainly shrunk. I guess it's also worth observing that in the last 10 or 15 years, we've seen a lot less liberalisation of trade relative to developing countries. And that means that some of the concerns that we um, have documented about the way, for instance, increasing trade with China impinged on particular communities in the US, those are uh, impacts that we're no longer experiencing. I don't think we've stopped liberalising trade with these countries because of those distributional impacts, but we have stopped pretty much liberalising with them. So in some sense, some of the tensions about inclusive trade of explicit groups being left out are less pressing than they say were at the beginning of the um, 2000s. But in terms of process, the EU established something useful. The UK is not doing it, and I think that is a great misfortune. Can I go to Ruth for that question about are we moving backwards or forwards? I would agree with Alan. The UK has really moved backwards from where we were when we were members of the EU. The provisions in terms of what Parliament's involvement in free trade agreements are really, really poor. I mean, it's based on the Ponsonby rule, which dates back to, I think, 1911, and which was meant for sort of other agreements, other kind of international agreements that, that were nothing to do with trade. And so they really just don't reflect what we were talking about right at the beginning, which is the, the huge impact that trade can have on 
every aspect of everyday life. And it's been really disappointing to see. I mean, we went through the whole process of the trade bill, which was made into an act back in March, I think it was. And just the resistance to any change, which would in this case have been kind of formalising a role for parliament, a role for devolved administrations, a presumption of transparency in negotiations, which is something you need in order to have proper scrutiny, a role for public engagement. And we just, we achieved very little of that. (laughs) The the government did make a couple of concessions, but there's a real resistance to opening this up to proper public debate and to proper parliamentary scrutiny. And Dan, you're in Cardiff, the heart of the Welsh Assembly. What's your perspective on how well the UK is doing in terms of including the devolved administrations and otherwise? I mean, again, I'd echo what Ruth said. The difference being that the Westminster Parliament, kind of its members voted not to have a say on these things, whereas there was never any question that, um, you know, the devolved governments or devolved legislatures would be involved. They all expressed an interest in, in having more involvement but that was never really on the cards. And it does feel a bit as if the UK government's objective at the moment is to kind of pile up a stack of new trade agreements, that getting an agreement is the critical thing, that that shows they've made a difference, rather than thinking about what difference those agreements make to the underlying trade patterns and how that economic activity will happen in the future. Because after all, you know, making a trade deal is probably good for the politicians and officials involved, but it doesn't in itself make any difference to anyone's life. It's the economic activity that it supports and facilitates that's critical. And it's not clear that the UK government has has a clear sense of how it wants to use those trade agreements in the round as part of its strategy for its host of other objectives, including, for example, the the discussions around levelling up, to which Alan alluded right at the start of our discussion. Well, it's clear that this question of inclusive trade policy is an emerging issue, which is one of increasing importance. And Alan, I believe that UK Trade Policy Observatory has a new initiative coming online soon, which will help in discussing these topics. Indeed, Chris, although not just the UK Trade Policy Observatory, You may have seen today that um, it's been announced that there'll be a new research centre for international trade called the Centre for Inclusive Trade Policy established. They'll spend something like £12 million on research into trade, particularly focusing on inclusivity over the next five years, of which about £8 is supplied by the UK's research funding organisation, UK Research and Innovation. We're very excited by it. The uh, leadership of the group will be from the University of Sussex. Also included are the University of Nottingham, University of Strathclyde, Queen's University in Belfast, the University of Cambridge and Cardiff University, and several um, international collaborators as well. In addition, we've got uh, nine partners outside academia, of whom the trade justice movement is one. Uh, We're very pleased to be able to say that. The idea is that we are going to study trade in um, all its complexity and glory with a view to trying to make sure that trade policy is to the benefit of the whole of society in the UK. 
we're going to be focusing particularly on um, geographical aspects, the um, different political domains that might be involved, the different uh, slices of society that you might think about, and inclusiveness over generations, considering both environmental issues, but also the extent to which trade policy might impinge on, uh, shall we say, uh, the aged. So it's a very exciting development. The team that you've seen uh, today, uh, Dan and Ruth, are part of this um, enterprise. And we're looking forward to, I guess, talking to you a lot more about inclusive trade over the next five years. Well, that sounds fantastic. A very, very worthwhile initiative. And we look forward to hearing more. But for today, there we have to leave it. So many thanks indeed to my guests today, to Alan Winters, to Ruth Bergen and to Dan Wincott. And as always, thank you very much to all of you for listening in. So please do join us again soon when we do it all again for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.